presented by the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast, a monthly event we hope you will add to your schedule. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm the chairman of the board of Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Thank you for joining us today. Today's topic is a timely one. Never have we as a state talked more about health care than we have in the face of this pandemic. We've all learned more about epidemiology than we ever thought possible. The reality is this is a crisis has highlighted the very high quality of health care in Colorado, which is one of the best in the United States. From bioscience companies to pharmaceutical researchers, Colorado's health care has been pushed in a way most could never have imagined as an industry and to a person They have stepped up and met every single challenge thrown in their path. I believe we owe it to the industry and to every single Coloradoan to preserve the quality and access of this incredible, outstanding system. We must be cautious about hurting the system we all depend upon. That's a good lead into the issue that we have today. A substantial health care reform effort in Colorado is underway. It's culminated in HB 20-1349. Now the sponsors of the bill have recently indicated they will no longer pursue the reform for the legislative session. However, it is very likely it will be a priority for next year. Two of my guests today, CSPR Director of Policy and Research, Chris Brown and Cameron Nikon, with the consulting firm of Guidehouse, have written an in-depth analysis of HB 20-1349 in a report titled The Colorado Option Plan, Modeling the Impacts of Government Price Controls on Healthcare. You can find this report on CSPR's website, and I encourage you to read it. My third guest today is Dave Davia. Many of you may know Dave as the CEO of Colorado Association of Mechanical and Plumbing Contractors. I know him personally as a fellow CSPR board member with me. And while Dave is involved with many public policy matters in this particular discussion, he brings a very valuable in-the-trenches perspective as someone who manages a very large employer-sponsored health care plan offered across his 160-member companies, one of the largest in Colorado. Let's start with you, Chris. Can you explain to us what the Colorado Option Plan is exactly? Yes. Thank you so much, Earl, and and good morning. Um, It's nice to have you with us, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess the, the best way I can explain the Colorado Option Plan is this is a a new take, the latest take on, you know, an old idea. It's something that has been talked about as a public option for years. And it's ultimately a pretty dramatic intervention, government intervention in the healthcare marketplace as the state is proposing establishing a new health insurance product that would be required to be sold by insurance companies immediately in the individual healthcare market, but ultimately moving into the employer uh, health plan market through the small group plan. And so this is a an unprecedented intervention. Washington state has passed similar legislation. Uh, no other state has implemented anything like this and so again, it's the latest take on, on an idea that has been around for some time for the government to take a more direct role in health insurance plans. Well, Chris, 
obviously it sounds to me like the plan is already laid out. It sounds to me like it's already minted. It sounds to me like maybe you say, you're saying it's all ready to go. So what's the progress to date and is ready to go tomorrow or where do we stand with regards to implementation? So the, the timeline for Colorado, I think really began after last year's legislative session with House Bill 1004 that tasked the state with developing a report, uh, a proposal to establish this public option plan. And they held stakeholder meetings through last summer that culminated in a report late last fall that very much followed the bill we're talking about today that has now been termed the Colorado Option Plan ultimately followed very closely. And so this plan would have, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, the sponsors of the bill thus far have recently uh, indicated that they will pull the bill for this current legislative session. We do expect, and they have indicated their intention on bringing this issue back uh, in 2021. There has been a lot of thought and effort put into this this idea. However, from our standpoint, a lot of information as it relates to the economic impacts has been left out thus far. Just a second. I want to make certain we're all on the same page. So you say we actually have gone from a concept. We had a study group. The study group has now helped give enough information. It's, you know, the public had a chance to input. Now they, we have a plan. Something that if we wanted to put it on the legislative floor, it could be enacted today if they hadn't pulled it already. Do I understand that correctly so far? They have outlined some specifics of the plan. Yes, they have. Okay. So you've done a third report and you're just going to start talking about the economics. Considering that they have a plan, we now have specific, more specific information from them. What kind of economics are we talking about here uh, that you've been able to assess in the third report? Sure. The elements that I, I think are most important to focus on when understanding how the plan is designed that then translate into the economic research that we do is this plan that, again, would be required to be sold in the individual market by current private companies. It would deliver savings to consumers. However, it does so by the government setting the rate at which the insurance plan pays hospitals at a rate well below current market levels. And that is the main mechanism that is used. And our analysis simply studied what the state is proposing in terms of changing the payment of this insurance product to hospitals from what is currently paid to where they are proposing and how that would impact uh, hospital revenues directly as individuals throughout Colorado ultimately chose to migrate to the Colorado Option Plan would receive theoretically the same level of service, uh, same type of services that they would need on, an, on another insurance product and yet ultimately paid the providers a lower amount. So our analysis yes. focused on the lower revenue because the question we've always posed from the very beginning is, how does this impact hospitals and the providers and the decisions that they will make as they face reduced revenue? Will they ultimately cut services and access in a way that impacts, possibly impacts quality and access? Or will they increase further cost shift those losses onto the remaining commercial market and 
employers offering health insurance would see an increase in their costs as a result of hospitals needing to make up for those losses. I, I, you've, you've played out something that we have a test that we could place. You've just described to me that, hey, this is a real winner for the people that need health insurance. This is a real win for those of us that are paying insurance premiums. So why wouldn't we do it if we're going to have our premiums reduced? And we happen to have somebody who has one of the largest populations of people in in the state that have health insurance under one particular plan. Dave, it's great to have you with us. And I understand that you've had a little bit of a chance to look at this option and what is the reality of what it this plan might do for the for the members of uh, your union. So thank you very much, uh, Earl, for the intro and Chris. Yeah, this is Dave DeVia. We do operate a self-funded health plan. Construction by nature tends to be cyclical. And we put a plan in place uh, 65 years ago for our members where my contractor's employees will pay into a health fund and if they move between my members, uh, they keep continuity of benefits. So as one job winds down, there's not a place for that person to move on to within that same company. They can go to another mechanical, plumbing, or HVAC contractor as part of our organization. And they take their benefits both from a retirement perspective, but also the health insurance side as well. So we uh, we did take uh, the time to analyze what Chris had provided and what they had done from an analysis perspective. And then we took that and went back to our uh, membership and our actuary and did that uh, same kind of look at what, what impacts this would have. Initial impacts, and we're talking hospital impacts only. We don't know about doctor's offices, doctor's clinics, urgent care clinics, and all the other healthcare support that we rely on. But initial uh, analysis shows us at a million-dollar impact in expenses to our plan. So we're going to add another million dollars in expenses with this transition or transfer to a state option. A million dollars? Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I must have missed something along the way here. I thought this was a cost savings that we are going to have. Um, can you describe how that million dollars possibly materialized? What What was the weakness if you saw one in, in particular, Dave? So capping rates, which is what the state option uh, anticipates to do, will actually cost shift those expenses from those hospitals that are now capped onto the larger market and the self-insured market. Uh, and that's that's our plan. So just kind of in dollars and cents, Earl, that means for every participant we have in the plan, that's $420 per year impact. Well, David, you're absolutely confirming what it was that Chris just said with regards to what they were looking at and probably the unintended consequences of this state option. Chris, can you give us a little bit more uh, detail and background. I understand there were two different models that were used with this, this report. Briefly, can you give us a, an overview as to how they fit together? So I think the two elements we we wanted to focus on were the first, how does this directly impact hospital revenue? And so we teamed with Guidehouse, and you'll hear from Cameron, who uh, built the model, that again, helped us understand the impacts by 
particular market area in terms of how the color option plan would impact hospital revenue. That Those results were then put into the REMI PI plus model, a, an economic forecasting and simulation model that allowed us to simulate the macroeconomic impacts across the broader economy on jobs, personal income, and GDP. Now, this is the impact of the, uh, on the hospitals that you did the impact study on. Is that correct? That's right. So the, the macro, the dynamic economic impacts are driven by, ultimately, there, there's the trade-off. We, see, we, we model consumer savings. So on one end, you see savings on, for those that join the Hakkot Option Plan. They reallocate right. their consumption. And that is then simultaneously coupled with the decisions of hospitals to either cut expenditures or cost shift, as we've been talking through with Dave, that translates to an increase in the cost of business for industries across Colorado. That's uh, kind of overwhelming, particularly when you talk about Dave's experience and actually taking it through his his members. Cameron, Chris has described two different models uh, that were used and uh, which was built by you and, and your team. And you're the experts in this particular, in the healthcare arena here that we counted on and being the actual backgrounds you, that you have. Can you explain the, the question you are ultimately trying to answer with your expertise that all of us with uh, not as much knowledge as you could understand? Sure. I just wanted to say first, thanks for having me on today. It's a real pleasure for us. But to your question, um, the short answer is we wanted to investigate the impact of the public option on the Colorado hospital system with that idea of being guided by this um, general gap in the research that we could find out there on the public option. Um, to be more specific, current modeling, which we cite in the report on the issue, focuses on the Colorado payers and the consumers and less so on the potential unintended consequences um, that the public option can throw at hospital systems. Uh, more concretely, we focused on hospital-specific reimbursement and how a new payer mix due to the public option might drive changes in hospital revenue streams, emphasizing a closer look at hospitals who are essential providers to a relatively large mix of Medicare, Medicaid, and rural residents. So you, you took the system that we have at the present time, and then you said, okay, if we put this new public option in place, how might this interrupt the current system that we have, and how might that mis- redirect our health care supply of health care that's available to the public because of the different pricing that's occurring? Is that a fair statement? That's correct, yes. So if you want to get a little bit more technical, we, we tried to model out just based on some of the things we knew about the, the current state of the Colorado health system, what reimbursement looked like for hospitals at the hospital level and by payer type. And then we tried to start figuring out what the big switches and levers would be that would drive changes under a Colorado public option in the future state. So when the public option would roll out and um, a certain amount of members or enrollees would switch into that lower reimbursement bucket of payers. Give us, give us if you would, a little bit of, of I understand that, all right? But uh, I, you know, I go to the you know, hospital every once in a while and to visit somebody and hopefully not for my own, you know, purposes. And we have people out in rural Colorado that have medical facilities available to them. We have a range of uh, medical services available within Colorado that are probably pretty broad. So what's reality? 
what does this mean to our, let's say, the front range hospitals? What does it mean to rural hospitals? You know, who you're telling me that the hospitals have to, in essence, help pay for this. Everybody has got enough profit margins to pay for this. And every let's just accept the fact that the hospitals make too much money so they can pay for more health care. Or am I being a little bit too simple? I think you may be simplifying it just a little bit. So the reality is um, not hospitals are, are created equal with geography and with that payer mix being one of the key differ- differentiators um, between hospitals. And what that means is a hospital system you might see in, in Denver might not have the same financial situation or see the same types of patients as a hospital system in a more rural region. And what that means for the hospital is in a rural area that serves a, a greater proportion of Medicare, Medicaid, and a lot of times uncompensated uh, care patients is their profit margins might not really look the same as what a hospital in Denver might be seeing. And how that, how that ties into the public option is, you know, we're, we're introducing a, a new payer to the system that proposes outright a lower reimbursement rate than what a lot of um, private or commercial payers are already paying out to hospitals. In a, in a situation where a hospital is already in a tight financial situation, just due to its, its payer mix and among other things, um, capital shortages, um, inability to invest in new technology, um, excess capacity due to, due to declining in patient care, and generally just low rural population growth, you could be exacerbating an issue that's been there for, for decades. seems to me, uh, I'm not trying to get political here, but it seems pretty obvious, uh, Cameron, that what you're doing is you're creating more of a differentiation between those of us that live in the front, front range, five counties, and the, and the rest of the state. And all that the public health option, the state option is offering is an, you know, accentuation of that. Uh, Where am I overreading that? I think that's a fair statement. In every um, situation we modeled out in in the future state, we saw rural hospitals getting pinched the hardest by the public option. It doesn't sound like a very good result to me, but I understand that uh, they are trying to do something to cover folks that don't have proper coverage or that don't have the uh, Uh, necessary coverage uh, or don't have coverage at all and some that are paying too much. And Chris, can you help us out again? Let's take a look at if you have the reductions in the hospital revenues, are we really getting the economic impacts uh, that uh, are anticipated? That is, everybody pays less and that's a big deal or or uh, are we having some economic impacts with regards to the state that even though some people may be paying less, the overall economic for the impact may not be what we quite expect. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, sure thing. And just to follow up on, you know, what Cameron was saying, we, we put together several scenarios in the model and in the report. So I would encourage listeners that are interested to go through the results in more depth. But The scenario we focused on the most, which we think is most likely, showed hospitals would would face revenue reductions between $530 million to over $1.1 billion a year. The difference between urban and rural hospitals, again, is quite significant. It would amount to roughly a 3% reduction in total revenue for urban hospitals and a more than double the impact in rural hospitals over 6.3% uh, total reduction in revenue. And wait, so wait, 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 stop, Chris. Wait, wait. How can you have a doubling in one hospital versus another? How does that happen? Well, I think for all the reasons Cameron just laid out, the markets are fundamentally very different due to the geography There is different payer mixes, meaning you have a higher share of possibly uninsured or 
uh, higher share of Medicare or Medicaid patients versus uh, commercial payers that pay more. Um, oh, that's the difference between the five counties in the Front Range and the rural area then. You've got a lot more private insurance carriers in the front five counties of the Front Range is what you're telling me. Is that right? That's one element. And you also have, you know, economies of scale. So you have a larger volume. And so it allows you to cover fixed costs more easily and overall have relatively more affordable care. And so it disproportionately impacts more rural markets. I mean, I think there's a lot of dynamics to unpack underneath that, but generally you can explain it in those three, you know, two or three dimensions. Well, Chris, I want to push you on another point, if I could. Uh, then I want to go to Dave, because Dave, again, is in the trenches. But I want to push you on one point. It looks like we could have as much as a 20 to 30 percent unemployment here in the United States because of current situations going on. Is this something that could add to job losses beyond what COVID-19 is doing and normal economic activities? Yeah. So under our scenarios, if hospitals absorbed all the costs and forced revenue cuts through their system, it would translate to roughly 4,800 fewer healthcare workers in hospitals or, or roughly 7% of all hospital jobs. The cost shift scenario where instead of taking those cuts, hospitals cost shift to uh, plans like Dave's and other commercial payers, it would lead to a net loss in over 6,400 jobs across the state and force hospitals to raise their prices by over 5% on those commercial plans. Doesn't sound like a very good outcome to me. But again, if it's working uh, and we have more people insured and people are saving a lot of money with regards to it, but I want to go back to Dave, if I could, for a second. You've, again, looked at it. And can you give us a sense of the cost shift within uh, your organization's health plan? I know you've mentioned $423 per person was increased. How about you, your organization as a whole? Does it does it have an impact on your organization as a whole beyond the individual's costs? Yeah, Earl, I, I, I do believe it will. You know, in the last eight years, we've been able to manage increases in pricing at 3% compounded. Uh, and at that same period of time, plan expenses that's, that's, about... David, I hate to interrupt you, but David, that is incredibly impressive. I can tell you that uh, many of the companies I know in private industry are looking at 8%, and they're lucky that they got 8%. For you to handle 3%, uh, you know, God love you, man. That was wonder- That was really well done. Yeah, we have a great group, really smart people, uh, some way, way smarter than me, for sure. But we've been able to manage our expenses and our uh, impacts to our insureds. So this, we believe, as I look at it, sets up, as I think you articulated, pit front range against the rest of the state. I think it also starts to make healthcare decisions for people uh, is, you know, our plan is real simple. I want the best possible insurance at the least possible price. And that's, that's our strategic mission. And, you know, with hospitals making, having to make changes because of what this would thrust upon them, you know, do we see rural hospitals shutting down? And if so, is the quality of care the individual seeks going to be better in a Denver Metro off, uh, hospital versus that in the mountains or the four corners or wherever the residents may live? And we just really are worried about quality and patient care and availability to quality care 
for people and managing our costs. And we don't think that this is a step in the right direction. Well, you're there and you've had a chance to look at it. And I don't think many other organizations have done the analysis you have, Dave. So thanks. Thanks a lot. I'd like to switch very quickly to the to the group as a whole. We're in the midst of this pandemic with COVID-19. And we have a program now that I think everybody has said that that one way or another will cost the state more. And I believe, uh, Chris, you have done some work or doing some work where we have a a state budget. And Dave, I know you're aware of it because of some previous conversations I heard. You know, we have, uh, I believe it's a $3 trillion deficit that we're looking at here in the state, maybe more. And then you put COVID-19 on top of that with regards to the unemployment insurance that we're lacking uh, the funding, and you've got para with regards to that. Chris, what is it, uh, $30 billion that the last number we had that we were short in uh, funding? Is that still the correct number, or is it larger than that now? Well, it'll probably grow from here. And so we have COVID-19, and you have an economy where you know, we don't have a very good outlook for the next 24 months. It doesn't mean that we're going to be in a depression. It just means we're coming from a very, very poor economic position. Tell me, if you take the state option and with COVID-19 and you take the state option on top of that, what are we talking about? Cameron, you know, give us a brief response. And Chris, I'm going to go to you after that. And David, if you have any thoughts, please. But Cameron, what quick ideas or thoughts do you have? Frankly, as things happen in real time, it's hard to give a definitive recommendation here. One thing I think that we've been recommending uh, in the way of providing access to care, but also making sure that everyone's made whole is is making an emphasis on on moving to telehealth services and making sure that um, people are still seeing their providers as needed and and that providers are still being paid as they should during this time as as service mix changes and, uh, and, and payer mix changes. Okay. So what you're saying is we need a little, we need some medical care changes and uh, particularly at a time like this, you're not, uh, suggesting that we pile on the state option in addition to what's uh, what we need to do to take some immediate corrective actions. With regard to that, I think the best move might just be to um, conduct further research and, and hit pause and give give hospitals that are demonstrably in trouble right now um, a little bit of wiggle room as, as this crisis unfolds. Chris, you know, you're, you're the numbers guy here, and, and COVID-19 has really just taken you know much of what we had in our wallet out how do you see that in the state option uh, mixing or not mixing well thanks Earl. and I, I you just called me the numbers guy so i'd be remiss if i i didn't catch you said uh in your remarks the colorado faced a three trillion dollar hit and i just oh, wanted, I didn't mean that. You know, don't want to scare listeners that much we can three billion sorry no gotcha. it's, thank it's, you <laughs> Quite all right, but I think it's it's large regardless. As you you know, and I think you know to acknowledge. I think it might be important to acknowledge uh, that the sponsors of this recognize the immense uncertainty, the financial uncertainty hospitals face, the uncertainty that insurance markets are going to face out of this, as as premiums very likely will rise coming out of this crisis. Hospitals are facing financial losses in the immediate term. It's unclear what will happen next year or as um, there's possible pent-up demand. So I think it's safe to say we face, again, incredible uncertainty, but hospitals are bearing a lot of the brunt of this crisis on both both fronts. And there have been estimates 
that have been put out there that have shown not from us directly, but that Colorado Hospital's system is set to lose over a billion dollars in uh, income this year. And so this could potentially double that impact and how that would ultimately play out in terms of uh, margins and the actual ability to operate, again, is, is, is incredibly uncertain. So I would echo Cameron's point that more research is needed, but I think a very delicate approach to these types of very substantive reforms that have large unintended consequences is really what's required. And more time will be needed to, again, assess the full full fallout of, of this crisis. Chris, I, I'm sorry. I've, I've, I, I look at this maybe a little too simply and correct me if I am, but if the state option, a large part of the state option is to be financed by the profit margins that the hospitals have so that they can, in essence, reduce the cost of service because their profit margins would allow that, and their profit margins are evaporating because of COVID-19, and it looks like it's having not only a short-term impact, but certainly more than just this year, possibly. In other words, they're, they've evaporated, and some of their reserves have evaporated because of COVID-19. <laughs> How do you make a state option financially work to be funded out of the hospitals if they don't have the profits they had before. For me, it's an open-ended question. I don't see how you – I think undoubtedly it it makes this type of policy far less tenable. Cameron's point about maybe having it be put on pause might make sense. David, you're the guy that's in the trenches, as I've said two or three times before. You've got to make this work you know, for all your members. Any observations you want to share with us? So I would just say that, you know, we've had some experience in what would be, I think, idealistic approaches to solving healthcare care uh, issues that have, you know, we've grappled with for years. The Affordable Care Act, for example, that solution was passed by Congress, cost our plan the first year over a million dollars. And now those costs are about 1.6. This is another option, uh, the state option that they are trying to uh, cobble together. And uh, it really is just a cost-shifting exercise, and it will cost our plan another million dollars. I think we have a long track record of showing we know how to manage healthcare. We provide good quality benefits at a reasonable price, and we actually manage expense and trend better than the market. And so it's my opinion that uh, the state option is not uh, a solution that we would support. Um, I applaud uh, legislators for looking for answers and trying to find solutions to problems for employers and for the insured. But this just is not it. David, Chris, Cameron, I cannot thank you enough for the podcast. I would really encourage our listeners to go to the study that CSPR, Common Sense Policy Roundtable, has posted on uh, their website. And I think you'll be astonished to find the relatively few people this state option adds uh, to the insurance rules for Colorado. And I think you'll be astonished to see the actual minimal savings for those that do take advantage of it relative to what they're spending today. Thank you for joining us. I hope you join us in future podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsensepolicyroundtable.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website in the news tab under CSPR Podcast. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communication. This has been a production of the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. 